Scripture reading for today comes from Acts 13, verses 26 through 31, and 38 through 52. And a new, new response at the end this time, so keep an eye out for that. But Acts 13, 26 through 31, and 38 through 52. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecutions against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated, and good morning again, and welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. If I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet, we are back in our sermon series through the book of Acts, which we've been calling The World Turned Upside Down. Everywhere the gospel message goes, it turns things upside down. And today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 13 and the Apostle Paul's first sermon. And it might not be literally his first sermon, but it is the first sermon of his that's recorded in the book of Acts. And so what does Paul talk about? You know, Paul, who used to be a Pharisee, who was an expert in the Old Testament, Paul, who persecuted Christians, Paul, who on the road to Damascus had a miraculous encounter with the ascended Christ, Paul, who wrote 13 of the New Testament books, almost half of them, 
What does Paul talk about in his first sermon? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The focal point of the entire Christian faith. What it all comes down to. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm sure that there are all sorts of interesting topics that Paul could have talked about. He could have introduced all sorts of theological topics or ethical topics, but in his first sermon, the most important thing for him to talk about was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's what we are going to talk about today, and as we do so, we'll have three points. First, historicity. Second, meaning. And third, response. Historicity, meaning, and response. And so let's begin with our first point, historicity. In the movie Inception, one of the main characters, who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio, he uses a top as a totem to be able to tell if he's dreaming or not. A major part of the plot of the movie is this concept of shared dreaming, where a group of people can go to sleep and inhabit the same dream world together. Uh, They can even inhabit dreams within dreams, but if you're constantly jumping between different depths of dreams, you might lose track of which level is reality. You could mistake a dream level for reality, and that's where totems come in. A totem is some object that a person intimately knows um, and takes with them into dreams or keeps it with them in reality, and because they intimately know it, they can expect it to behave in a certain way when they're in reality. And so for Leonardo DiCaprio, it's this top, and if he's dreaming and he spins the top, it spins forever, but if he's in reality— like all tops, it eventually falls over. And so at the very end of the movie, the top comes into play. You know, after the characters have navigated through all these different dream levels, the movie ends with Leo spinning the top to see if he's in reality or if he's dreaming. But before the top falls or doesn't fall, he walks away. He doesn't wait to see if he's dreaming or not. And as he moves out of frame, the camera slowly zooms in on the top so that we, the audience, can see whether he was dreaming or not. But it cuts to black, and we can't know for sure. And this has sparked endless debate. Was the top starting to wobble? Was it staying steady? Does it even matter? Is the point of the movie that we just choose our own reality, and the fact that Leo decided not to watch means that he's made his decision that that's his reality now? You know, maybe what's real doesn't actually matter. Maybe we define our own reality. When a speech that the director of the film, Christopher Nolan, gave at Princeton University, he pushes back on the idea that reality does not matter. He says this, The point is, objectively, it matters to the audience in absolute terms. Even though what they're watching is a fiction, it's its own virtual reality, the question of whether that's a dream or whether it's real is the one I've been asked the most about from any of my films. It matters to people enormously, and that's the point. Reality matters. You know, there have been a lot of statements made about Jesus and especially his resurrection that miss the mark, in my opinion. You know, statements that might seek to relativize it. That's great if Jesus and his resurrection matters to you, 
but it just doesn't matter to me. Or, you know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a true, it's true spiritually or metaphorically, but obviously it didn't literally happen. It teaches us important truths like self-sacrifice and hope, but it didn't really happen. In our passage, Paul is going to say the exact opposite. He's going to say the resurrection really happened. It's real and it matters. It's meaningful. It's meaningful because it's real. Now, Paul begins his sermon a little bit before our sermon text began in verse 16. If you've had a Bible, you could go back and take a look. Um, And he spends 10 verses tracing through Israel's history. It's like he's beginning his sermon by saying, look, we have a shared history. We all agree that these things happened. Uh, We, you know, God led our people out of Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness. They entered the promised land. God gave them judges. God gave them kings, including King David, from whose line God promised that he would send a savior. But then Paul says something that uh, not everyone listening might agree with, that the promised Savior has come, that Jesus was the Savior that God had promised to Israel. This is where our text comes in, uh, verses 26 and 27. Brothers, son of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Paul's like, our shared history and scriptures all said that salvation would come through someone like Jesus, and yet you didn't recognize him. You misunderstood the prophets, even though you read them every Sabbath. And ironically, you actually fulfilled our scriptures by not recognizing Jesus and condemning him to death. He goes on in verses 28 and 29. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. He references Pontius Pilate, the Roman official who gave the order for Christ to be crucified, a historical figure, a real person who they all know, who was probably still alive, but had certainly been living during their lifetime. Because again, the death of Christ was historical. It's an easily falsifiable event. Either Pontius Pilate gave the order to kill him or he didn't, but you wouldn't dare say he did it if he didn't. But everyone knew at that time that he did. Pilate gave the order, and Jesus was crucified and buried in a tomb. Everybody was probably on the same page about that. Yes, the man Jesus was truly crucified under Pontius Pilate and buried in a tomb. But then Paul takes it one step further and says something that is at the core of the Christian faith, at the core of the gospel message, something that everyone has to accept or reject. Verses 30 through 31 But God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. But God raised Jesus from the dead. And there are many witnesses. Jesus was killed, dead, buried in a tomb, all under Pontius Pilate, witnessed by many. But he didn't stay dead. 
God raised him from the dead, and many witnesses saw it. It really happened. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus are historical events. They happened in history. They're facts. It's a reality, and it matters. That's what Paul's first sermon rests upon. The death and resurrection of Jesus is a historical reality. It's not a metaphor. It's not spiritual only. Actual physical death and actual physical resurrection. And that changes everything. Because if it's true, then all other things kind of fall into place for believer and unbeliever alike. Because look, there are things about Christianity that can be hard to swallow or accept for, you know, maybe for the unbeliever that keeps you away from the faith or for, for the believer, something that makes it hard to live out your faith. You know, there are things about Christianity that are hard to swallow or accept, but the resurrection as a historical reality puts those things into perspective, right? And you might think to yourself, I don't really want to become a Christian because of what it teaches about sex, you know? Bible teaches sex is for marriage, marriage is for a man and a woman, you might think, I can't accept that, and therefore I can't accept Christianity. But that's not the way to think about it. The real question is, can you accept that Jesus rose from the dead? If he didn't rise from the dead, then who cares what Christianity says about anything? It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then he is God and King. And I had better conform my ideas about sex or anything else with his. Or take some secondary issue in Christian theology, like how exactly did God create? Was it six literal 24-hour days? Were the days really more like long ages? Or is, you know, Genesis less scientific and more poetic, describing a framework of realms and rulers? You know, faithful Christians have disagreed on some of these questions, And they can do so yet remain in fellowship because they agree on what is ultimately most important. Jesus really resurrected. You think God created like this. I think God created like that. We both agree it was God who created, and we both believe that Jesus really resurrected. We can keep the main thing the main thing and let the secondary things be secondary. Most important thing you need to reckon with, if you're a believer or not, is did the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happen? It's an easily falsifiable event, but if it's true, it changes everything. So Paul uses his first sermon to say that it's true. It really happened. It's historical. There were witnesses. It's easily falsifiable. Now, let's say you do believe the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ happened. You believe it's a historical event. It's true. What does it mean? What does the fact that Jesus rose from the dead mean? And that takes us to our second point, meaning. The uh, comedian, Nate Bargatze, has a bit where he talks about the movie The Sixth Sense. And uh, fair warning, I'm going to ruin it again. So if you need to step out or plug your ears or whatever, do what you need to do. But Nate Bargatze makes fun of all of us for believing that Bruce Willis was alive when we watched the movie The Sixth Sense for the first time. And this is what he says. 
Think about when you watched it for the first time. None of us knew that he was dead. That was the biggest surprise in our lives. We just thought his wife wasn't talking to him for like a year. That made more sense to us than him possibly being dead. And someone asks, well, did they show him dying? Yes, a guy shoots him with a gun in the very first scene of the movie. But no, we all thought this was a movie about a wife giving her husband the silent treatment. And it's true. The movie really does start with a scene of Bruce Willis being shot. Objectively, that's what happened. But when you're watching it for the first time, you don't know what that scene means. You know he was shot, but you don't know what it means. What significance is that to the movie? It seems initially to just mean that he suffered some sort of trauma. So, of course, later on, you learn what it means is that he's actually dead. He died when he was shot. That's what the scene meant. In our passage, Paul explains two things, that the resurrection happened. It's an objective reality, but it's not enough just to know what happened. You need to know what it means. And so Paul continues to explain the meaning of the resurrection. What's the point? What is its significance? And I'm not sure that the full significance can be contained within a single sermon for Paul or for me, but Paul hits some of the major points of the resurrection's meaning. What's its significance? Why does it matter? And so first, in verse 38, Paul says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. What does the resurrection mean? It means forgiveness of sins. And I mentioned this at Easter, I think, uh, and so I'm just repeating myself, but how does the resurrection connect with knowing that your sins are forgiven? Well, imagine a glass being filled up with water. How do you know when it's full? When it overflows. You pour more and more and more water, and eventually the glass can't contain anymore. It's full, and so water begins to overflow. It streams down the sides Similar kind of picture is going on with Christ's resurrection. Our sins are pinned to Jesus. He goes to the cross, dies, and is buried, and remains dead for a time, but eventually he resurrects. He overflows out of the grave, if you will. And that's a sign to us that the penalty for our sins has been paid in full. It's been fulfilled. There's no more of God's wrath left to be satisfied. It's been fulfilled in Christ, and he has resurrected to assure us. His resurrection is a sign that assures us our sins are forgiven. And so you can be assured that if you are in Christ, if you've repented of your sin and placed your faith in him, that your sins have been forgiven. You can be assured of your forgiveness. And I can't overstate how crucial this is for your Christian life. It's why each and every week a part of our liturgy involves hearing the law of God, confessing our sin, and being assured of God's grace, being assured that you are forgiven. Because when we wonder if someone is mad at us, our fellowship suffers with that person, right? I mean, in today's digital age, which totally enables passivity, just wondering whether someone is mad at you might be the end of that relationship. You can just find new people to have relationships with. Or you know, if you're a little less dramatic, at the very least, when you worry someone is mad at you, you're likely to be tentative around them. Keep them at arm's length. You're a little bit nervous to initiate. You might beat around the bush. You might wait for them to seek you out. If those are the sort of things that happen in our human relationships, when we lack confidence in our relationship, how much more so in our relationship with God? 
But God doesn't want you to live like that. He calls you to worship. He assures you of his grace. He wants you to see Christ resurrected and know that your sins are forgiven. You do have fellowship with God. He's not mad at you. Your sins have been forgiven. He's welcomed you in with open arms into intimate fellowship with him. The resurrection means that your sins have been forgiven. It's the first thing that the resurrection means. Your sins have been forgiven. Second thing that the resurrection means is freedom. Paul continues in verse 38, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. What does the resurrection mean? Freedom from what you could not be freed from by the law. Now, Paul used to be a Pharisee. He knew exactly what it was like to try to find freedom through the law of Moses. He says in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had works of the law down pat. But unfortunately, works of the law can't save anyone. As Paul wrote in Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. If you know your Bible front to back and think that justifies you in God's sight, you're using the Bible wrong. If you know your Bible front to back and realize that you are a far, far worse sinner than you originally thought, you're using your Bible right. The law won't justify you, but it will make you aware of your sin and aware of how much you need God to be gracious to you. How much you need God's grace, and you have it. You've been set free from sin. You don't have to try and work your way into freedom some other way. The resurrection means that you have been freed, and so be assured that you are free Are you assured that you're free? How can you know if you experience assurance of your freedom? Well, maybe the parable of the prodigal son can help. Uh, Do you know the story? It's from Luke chapter 15. A man has two sons, and the younger son, the so-called prodigal, he asks for his share of the inheritance early. Basically, he says, I don't want you, dad, but I do want your stuff And surprisingly, the father gives it to him. And what does the younger son do? He wastes it with reckless living and prostitutes. Eventually, though, he comes to his senses and he returns home prepared to say to his father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Treat me like a slave so I can work off my debt. That's what I deserve. And how does the father respond? He runs to his son, embraces him, kisses him, has his servants put his best robe on him, puts a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. They bring out the fattened calf and kill it, and they have a feast. Have you ever thought about what you would do if you were that younger son, that younger brother, and the father did all that for you? I mean, I might be like, no, no, no. I'm not worthy. I've been such a disgrace. I can't accept this robe. I can't accept this ring. Don't throw me a party. I don't want any of it. I can't accept it. I messed up so badly. 
But from all that Luke 15 tells us, that's not how the younger brother responds. He seems to accept all that the father gives him. I mean, can you believe the nerve of that guy? He's just going to accept all of that after what he put his father through? How can he do that? Well, he can accept it all because he's been set free. He's been set free from what the law could not set him free from. And instead, he's embraced the Father's grace. Of course he isn't worthy. Of course he's been a disgrace. Of course he doesn't deserve to be treated so lavishly by the Father. But that's the point. To even reason, using words like worthy or deserve or uh, owe, uh, is to miss the point. That means you're not free from the law if you're thinking through worthiness and what you deserve. You understand? When you're free from the law, you don't let concepts like what you deserve or what you're owed or what you're worthy of factor into how God treats you or anyone. It's just grace and nothing else. But on the other hand, if you do find yourself often thinking about what's deserved or owed or what one is worthy of, you're much more like the older brother in the story. And the older brother is not free at all. Right? The older brother probably thought that if he had done the things his younger brother did, there's no way he showed his face again, let alone accept all that the father was giving him because the older brother wasn't free from the law. It was still the overarching paradigm that he viewed his relationship with the father by, which is why he is so upset with the father and refused to go into the younger brother's party. He could not accept that his father received the younger brother by grace alone. And so the older brother wasn't free from the law. You know, some of us are probably like the older brother. We're probably more like the older brother than the younger brother. You know, maybe your natural tendency is to think through what one is worthy of or what one deserves or is owed. And that's the reasoning of someone who's not free. And a a theme throughout Scripture is that it's much more dangerous to be like the older brother than the younger brother. Jesus was crucified for your sin just as much as anyone else's. Your obedience, your service, they can't be why you think God owes you this or should treat you that way. Only grace can be the reason. Grace for you and grace for all who believe, even younger brothers and especially for older brothers. Jesus was crucified for your sin, and he resurrected so that you would know that you're free from the law. You don't need to use it to reason out how you or anyone stands before God. Christ resurrected. It's only grace. Grace for older brothers. Grace for younger brothers. Grace offered to all. The only question then is, how will you respond to this grace? And that takes us to our final point, response. You know, my wife makes some of the best guacamole I have ever had, maybe the best. And if you're ever making homemade guacamole, one of the most important ingredients is cilantro. It has this slight tart, almost lemon-lime taste to it, and it's perfect in guacamole or any other Mexican or Latin American dish. But did you know that for some people, you know, roughly 25% by some estimates, it doesn't have a tart lemon-lime taste. For about a quarter of people, cilantro tastes like soap. It tastes like dish soap to them, which 
obviously will lead to radically different responses to foods with cilantro in them. You know, for most people, when they have my wife's guacamole, they turn into gluttons. But for others, for those whose cilantro tastes like dish soap, they start looking for a trash can to spit it out in. Same herb, same cilantro, radically different responses. In our passage, Paul warns his listeners to be very careful about how they respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because there will be radically different responses. Paul says in verses 40 through 41, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And he's quoting Habakkuk 1.5. And Paul is saying, don't be like the scoffers who were told what was going to happen, judgment, but did not believe. You know, be careful how you respond to what I'm telling you right now. And over the rest of the passage, we actually see some of the different responses. But before I get into them, you know, let me just say what I've said before. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is either the most important thing in the world uh, or it's not important at all. You know, it can't be moderately important. Either you accept it and everything in your life centers on it, or you reject it and it makes no difference, right? It makes no sense for the resurrection uh, to, to turn Christianity into a hobby for you, or it makes no sense for the resurrection to make Christianity something you do when you have time. It's either the most important thing or the least important thing, but it can't be anything in between, And so now, in our passage, we see some of the different responses to the resurrection. Uh, Verses 42 through 44. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And so this first group made up of Jews wanted to hear more. They wanted to keep, keep hearing about the resurrection repeatedly. Let's to get together again next Sabbath. We'll bring everyone in the city with us to hear about the resurrection. And it wasn't just Jews responding positively. Gentiles too. Verses 48 and 49. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. You know, these Gentiles don't even share the same history as Paul and Barnabas and the Jews. But upon hearing that there's a God in Israel who forgives sins through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they start believing too. They find eternal life. And the word of the Lord spreads throughout the region. Jews and Gentiles responding overwhelmingly positively to the resurrection of Jesus. It becomes the most important thing in their life. But not all the responses were positive. Verse 45. But when the Jews, which that just refers to the Jewish religious leaders in this instance, not all Jews in general, but when the Jews, the religious leaders, saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Skip down to verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. 
And so while some were responding positively, there was also a strong negative reaction. Religious leaders were filled with jealousy. They contradicted Paul. They even reviled him. They incited influential people to stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of town. You know, the resurrection of Jesus was a threat to their way of life, a threat to the power structures that they benefited from, an existential threat even. And so they lashed out and persecuted those who were sharing the message. That was their response to the resurrection. And so what did Paul and Barnabas do? Verses 51 and 52, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They shook off the dust of their feet, which was also something that Jesus had told his disciples to do in Luke chapter 9. And the sense is that they are leaving no trace that they were ever in that town. The message being sent is that all responsibility now for the persecutor's actions will rest on the persecutors, which is the case for all who finally and ultimately reject the resurrection. All responsibility at the end of the age will rest on them. At the end of the age, either Jesus takes responsibility for your actions by taking them to the cross, or you take responsibility for your actions, a fate that we should all shudder to imagine. The word of the Lord is that Jesus Christ died and resurrected for the forgiveness of sins and to set you free And so how will you respond? And let me be clear. My question is not how should one respond, how ought one respond to this. I'm asking you, how will you respond? You know, maybe you don't believe that Jesus resurrected. You know, have you done the work to back up that conclusion? How can you know that? And your reason can't be because dead people don't rise from the dead. That's tautological reasoning. That's the question right now. And so how do you know? How do you explain everything that happened in the years and decades and centuries and millennium that followed? If not the resurrection of Jesus, something else, probably even crazier, would have to be true for the gospel and Christianity to spread to where it is today. You know, the simplest explanation is that as hard as it may be to believe, the resurrection really happened. Don't you want it to be true that it happened? Don't you want resurrection to be possible The gospel of Jesus Christ says that it is. Or maybe you do believe that Jesus resurrected. Is that the most important thing about you? Is that what your life centers on? Is that what you live and die by? Are you, like the people in our passage, begging to hear more about Jesus and the resurrection, the next Sabbath, and the next Sabbath, and the next? Are you bringing the whole city to hear about it? Is it the most important thing to you? Or if it turned out not to be true, would your life roughly remain the same, you know, practically or emotionally? How important to you is it that Jesus resurrected? Do you live and die by it? Have you searched the depths of the meaning of the resurrection for you? We got only into a little bit of it today, but you can meditate on the meaning of the resurrection forever. It's the forgiveness of your sins, sins you haven't even committed yet. It's your freedom from the law, even as you struggle with re-enslaving yourself to it. 
It's self-sacrifice for your sake. It's the penalty for your sin being paid in full. It's justification. It's love. It's union with Christ. It's prophecies fulfilled. It's a fallen restoration, fallen creation restored. It's sicknesses healed. It's broken relationships healed. It's new life. It's good news. It's the hope of moving from death to life in this life and the next. It's death, the final enemy defeated. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The resurrection happened. The depths of its meaning are infinite. It's the only question then is how will you respond? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you that you are a God who raises the dead when we're tempted to rely on ourselves to remain enslaved to the law, stir in us a vision to see Christ resurrected and rest on him alone and not ourselves. Father, we admit that often the resurrection's importance in our life is inconsistent. By your spirit, make it the most important thing about us and raise us up with Jesus on the last day. We pray this all in his holy name. Amen.